The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Um, we have with us this morning, as been said a couple times, our friend Warren Betcher. He is the pastor of Sovereign Grace Church of Marlton, New Jersey. So um, if you've been around here for a while, you know that we are a part of a, of a family of churches called Sovereign Grace Churches. And um, we have little districts or regions within our denomination um, where we get together and powwow and talk about what we're doing and uh, strengthen each other and our mission together. And Warren um, is the regional leader for our area in Sovereign Grace, the Northeast. And so he is uh, here with us this morning. One thing I want you to know is um, I could tell you all the biographical stuff on Warren, uh, which is maybe not, I mean, it's very interesting. He's married to Kim, who's fantastic, and they've been married for a long time. 40 years? Good gracious. Who in here, okay, <laughs> first of all, who in here is over 40 years old? Is anybody in here, okay, <laughs> in the time that you guys have been married, most in this room have been born, so I just <laughs> put that in here. Yeah. <laughs> so they have five kids and they have multiplying grandchildren, how many, 12 grandchildren, good gracious, any cats or dogs? No, okay. Some, there's some, you know, pet people in this room, so, um, but they planted the church in Marlton, New Jersey um, over 25 years ago, and uh, so they are very familiar with what we're doing here. We are a church plant starting, uh, joining God's mission here, and they've done that over 25 years ago, but here's one thing I want you to know about Warren. In the time that I've known him, um, Warren has gone through multiple seasons of suffering. Um, multiple ways in which God has led him through very challenging circumstances um, at a, on multiple fronts. And at every point along the way, I've seen Warren respond being honest about the pain that he's experiencing, um, humble about the struggle that suffering is, but I constantly see him leaning into Jesus and leading his wife to lean into Jesus for grace. Um, and like somebody who's got a bunch of scars and is still walking with Jesus, that's the person I want to lean into to understand what grace is. And so that is, the, that is why I'm excited to have Warren up here bringing God's word for us. So Warren, would you come and lead us into understanding grace a little better? It is, uh, it's great to be here. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to coming, my wife and I. Um, and I'm glad she's with me, so I hope you meet her. She, I'm not impressive, she is impressive. Um, and as I think Bill, you said earlier, we married up, right? We, wise men marry up, and we, we married way up. And uh, so I'm glad she's with me, and we're gonna make our way this weekend, after this weekend, we're gonna make our way up to Acadia in Maine, have a week together, and then we're gonna end in Cambridge, speaking down at Sean Wu's church in Cambridge next weekend and spend some time with them. So we are so excited to be here. Um, and just so you know, there's people praying for you all the time. Uh, so our church prays, uh, we pray, pray regularly for our churches in the Northeast, and we're so excited for this church in Manchester. Um, and really what you are, I was thinking about this. You're a gospel outpost. And you think, what's an outpost? Well, one, it's a, it's a place of safety, right, um, for people who, are, who are, can be in danger. So it can be a place for people um, uh, and where Christians come in and they're safe. And so in one sense, it's a place of safety. But an outpost is also a place of mission where there's an expanding mission that goes on. 
And uh, so there's a gospel going out here. So I'm grateful we have a gospel presence here in Manchester. Um, Sovereign Grace years ago had a, had a heart to see a church planted in New England. And that started with Paul Buckley. And now we have four churches in New England with another being uh, pursued. We had a heart once to have a church in Philadelphia. We now have five churches in Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia alone has five churches. And I think in five, ten years, that could easily be ten. Um, so gospel presence is growing. So we're very grateful for, for you and what God's doing here. And your impact in this community, Jacob shares that all the time, just how this church is impacting uh, this area. And then, and we don't do this as just mutual encouragement because one guy encourages, uh, so we both encourage. This is very genuine. I love your pastor. I, I love Jacob. I respect him. I think he's one of our one of our great thinkers, really good thinkers in Sovereign Grace in the Northeast. I have benefited from him um, greatly. So he's affected how I, I do my role as regional leader. Um, so input conversations I have with him carry out and I think bear fruit to others. Uh, so I want you to know my affection for him and my respect for him, and, and I just enjoy him. You can't be with Jacob without laughing um, and having a good time, which we did last night as we were out with he and Michelle uh, for dinner. So it's very good to be here. All right, please open your Bibles. Let's get into God's Word. Open your Bibles to uh, Titus chapter 2. So if you're new to the Christian faith, go near the end of your Bible, about three quarters uh, 80% of the way through, you're going to come across the letter of uh, Timothy, First and Second Timothy, then Titus, and then a little tiny book, Philemon, Hebrews. You're right in that time frame. So Titus chapter 2, and what I want to speak to you on this morning is God's grace. So it sounds like that youth, your youth camp, it was the attributes of God, uh, the God who's the great I am. Um, and you can look at different attributes of God. The attribute we're going to be looking at, at, is, uh, at this morning is grace. Now, typically, if I were to ask you, when you think of God's grace, which part of the Bible do you think about? And I think oftentimes we say, when you think about grace in the New Testament, right? It's sort of the law in the Old Testament. We can think of the law and, and how do you obey God. In the New Testament, it's grace. But actually, grace is throughout the entire Bible. It's the whole way God is described to his people. So in the great encounter that, God, that Moses has, um, with God on Mount Sinai when he's getting the law, actually uh, after he threw the one ten commandments down, he goes back up and gets and is going to rewrite them. He then has this encounter with God uh, where God reveals himself to Moses. And just listen to how it's described in Exodus chapter 34, how God reveals himself to Moses. It says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how God described himself at this key moment in Israel's history as the God of grace. And throughout the Old Testament, we hear that echoed over and over again. I believe you're in summer psalms. You're going to be doing psalms throughout the summer. We've, we've done that in the past as well. Psalm 103.8, same thing. God is gracious and merciful. Psalm 145.8, same thing. God is gracious and merciful. We just finished a book in our church, uh, the book of Joel. Uh, we're, doing, uh, we're doing five of the minor prophets this summer. So a little bit different. We call them little big shots. Um, small books, a lot of content. The minor prophets often have judgment in them. So they can be very sobering books to, to teach. But in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious 
and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is a book where people have become indifferent to God, were rebellious to God. And you think about what does it mean not to love God or to hate God? Well, one can just be indifference. Eh, God, who cares? And you just sort of move through life as though God does not exist. And the other way is to actually be angry at God, to rebel against God. Well, that was sort of Israel. They just were angry against God, indifferent to God. He sends a plague of locusts to pull them back, so he's disciplining them, and it's a very severe plague. But then you have this cry out, even now, repent, because what God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So God, even in the Old Testament, is described as the God of grace. So let's define grace, right? How would we define grace? It's not a prayer before a meal, right? Say grace. That's how I grew up. Say grace. And grace is more than a prayer before a meal, and it's certainly not an excuse to sin. Grace does not just say sin does not matter anymore. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Listen to these two theologians and how they would describe grace. William Hendrickson describes it this way. God's grace is his act of favor, bestowing the greatest gift upon those who have deserved the greatest punishment. Greatest gift to those who have deserved the greatest punishment. A.W. Pink, in his book on the attributes of God, says the following. It is the favor of God shown to those who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. It is completely unmerited and unsought. Grace can neither be bought, earned, or won. If it could, it would cease to be grace. It is the unmerited, unearned favor of God to people who don't deserve that. And that's what we've heard, even with the, the youth sharing today about God's grace um, to us. Jacob actually quoted out of 1 John 4, 4 about God's grace, that we didn't love him. He loved us first. So this morning's message title is Awesome Grace. The main point's very simple. God's grace completely saves and radically transforms those who receive it. It graciously saves, completely saves, and radically transforms those who receive it. So, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we've been able to read God's word, to sing about truth this morning, to hear your word read from other texts to hear a testimony of your grace to young people who went away to youth camp. Lord, you are the God of all grace, and you are lavish in that grace. You are generous in that grace. You are persistent in that grace. And Lord, I thank you for that. That is our great hope this morning. Lord, please help me to serve these people whom you love, whom you've set your affections upon, and Lord, whom you want them to know the God of all grace. You want them to know you better. So please use your word this morning to instruct our hearts, to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our hearts. Lord, 
It could be a hard week in front of us. Maybe some already know the week will be hard. Maybe some it will be unexpected. But Lord, there will be challenges. It's a challenge of ease and prosperity is one type of challenge or trial. There will be challenges. God, may your grace empower us for this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, who wrote Titus, is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's also been called the apostle of grace. And he is a man who testified greatly to the grace of God. Listen to what it says uh, about Paul in Acts chapter 20, verses, uh, verse 24. It says the following. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. And by the way, we all have a course to run. We all have ministry, regardless of age. Right? If you know Christ here, he's got things for you to do this week. People for you to meet. People for you to care about. They may be other believers who may be encouraged. They may be unbelievers who are walking around right around us right now. Clues to why are people sitting in a room on a beautiful Sunday morning? Like, do you realize being here is a miracle? Where would you be today if Christ had not somehow invaded your life or wasn't drawing you? You wouldn't be in this room. You'd be sleeping in, you'd be going somewhere to do something different. And yet here we are, and, and that's what Paul says, oh, I want to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul starts all his letters with grace to you. That's more than a greeting. All of his letters to grace to you, and ends all of them except for one with the same thought, grace to you. He expounded God's grace in his letters, particularly Romans and Ephesians. Not only is he the only, probably the greatest theologian of God's grace, but think for a moment how Paul personally encountered God's grace. If you ever wonder who God can save, just look at Paul. You know, we always think, hey, can God save that person? What kind of life have they lived? What kind of things have happened to them? What have they done? How far have they gone? Folks, Paul was a terrorist to the church. He was bringing threats against the church. He was walking into homes and arresting Christians. He'd be coming in and arresting a, a father or a mother, taking away a spouse, taking away a child, taking away a parent. And, and he was like casting his vote for them to be put in jail or put to death. And he's not content to stay in Jerusalem. This man is so bent to crush Christianity, to remove the name of Jesus from the earth. He travels breathing threats against the church. And then God arrests him when he's on the road to Damascus. Paul, Paul, Saul at that point, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this man who would have said, man, I thought I was doing God's will by opposing Jesus. His whole life is turned upside down. And Paul doesn't wallow in self-pity or guilt. He doesn't sit there and say, well, how am I going to make this up to God over time? I mean, I've done all this evil. How will I undo it? What will I have to do to become a good person? He is saved by grace. And he personally knew the grace of God. Think about this man. Sometimes if you do something hard or bad, 
what is that, what's it like when you have to go back to the people that you've sinned against? That can be challenging. You know, I've got to look at you face to face. It's a little hard to look at you face to face. Paul went back to Jerusalem where he would have met people like, I, I took your brother. I took your son. I took your wife. I took your father. I took your husband. And yet grace had so saved him, he can go back to that area and was received. There's no explanation apart from, from, apart from the gospel for that kind of change. God radically saved Paul and radically transformed Paul. Folks, when we look at this, grace is powerful, it's active, and it works. So three activities of God's grace this morning. We're going to go through them quickly. One, God's grace reveals God's initiative in salvation. Two, grace brings complete salvation. And then three, grace trains us to righteousness. First, grace reveals God's initiative in salvation. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. It has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, how did God's grace appear? Well, if you're in chapter 2, just look over to chapter 3, verse 4, where it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Our Savior appeared. It appeared in Christ Jesus. Here's what we must see in God's grace. It's all of God's initiative. It's all of God's initiative. So hear how this is captured by Paul in Romans 5.8, and then we're going to hear from John in 1 John 4.10. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What did you hear one of the youth say? Christ didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. And it's not just enemies. Sometimes I don't think we always think of ourselves as enemies of God. Like, I never hated God. But actually, were you indifferent to God? <laughs> People even say the absence of love isn't hate. It's indifference. Hate at least has an activity. There's, I'm, I'm feeling something towards you. It may be feeling the wrong thing in the wrong direction, but it's intense. It's connected. Indifference is you're irrelevant. You're, irrele you're irrelevant to me. God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, so we didn't love him first. He doesn't respond to us. He doesn't save us because we're lovely or we're loving but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's all of God's initiative. God is sovereign in salvation. He appears and he saves. So what's the impact on us? And it seems to me intact to us would be two things. One, that should humble us. There's nothing we did. It should humble us. There's nothing that God looks out and says, potential. Cute, good personality. <laughs> that person will have impact. There's nothing in that way that attracts God to us. The initiative is all his. That should humble us. And please hear this. Pride is the enemy of grace. Pride is the enemy of grace. If we have a high opinion of self, having a high opinion of self limits 
our need and appreciation of God's grace. So it should humble us. But here's the other thing I think it should do. It should also assure us. If God loved you when you were unlovable, how much more now that you're his child? If God loved you that way, how much more now that he said, you're my son and you're my daughter? I think it's so easy for us to sort of, yeah, we're saved by grace, but now I have to live it up. You know, I have to, I have to live up to the standard of God's love. Folks, God loves messes. <laughs> you know, I think God looks at us, and I, I've said this to our pastors at times because we're aware of how we mess up. And I say, you know, God loves his boys. That's what I said to our guys. I said, God loves his boys. Now, he looks at his boys and says, man, they create some havoc. You know, they go out and mess up, and they're, they're breaking things, and, you know, they're doing stuff. They're loud. They're a little bit obnoxious. Sometimes they bicker. Sometimes they fight. Sometimes you're like, can just be quiet. But God loves his boys. And God's confident of his raising and his training of his boys. His God's like, these are my boys. I think about how God, I think about how I think about my daughters. Um, I have uh, two daughters, and I remember walking them down the aisle. And then I would turn around and do the, the ceremony. And then I'd pronounce them at the end, and that was the hardest part for me. Because it was like they're never long, no longer going to be Julie Betcher, Amy Betcher. It's going to be Julie Moon and Amy DiMarcangelo. And I would pronounce them, and everybody's eyes would go on them, and they'd start, and I would turn and start to cry. I love my girls. Oh, how does God think about his girls? Oh, he loves his girls. You know what God's protective. He is caring about his girls. He loves his girls fiercely. My wife, we had a, when we were living in a twin in Media, Pennsylvania, I had just been starting pastoral ministry. And um, so we were, actually, I think I was still teaching in a Christian school at that point. And, and there was a little boy in our neighborhood that was sort of a bully and, and, um, and Kim was reacting to this little boy and just sort of saying, now remember, uh, and she had been impatient with him at one point. I said, now remember, he doesn't know, he doesn't know Jesus, and we've got to be the light of Jesus to him. And, and I'm telling her about all these things. And then out the front lawn, he's yelling at my daughter. And he's a couple years older than her, so she's probably four, you know, three or four, and he's probably five or six. And he's, I went out the house, out the front door, over the railing, not down the stairs, over the railing, and sort of backed this little five-year-old boy against the tree and said, don't you ever talk to my daughter like that again. And my wife came back and said, hey, I think that really showed him Jesus. <laughs> and it was like, but that's my daughter. Folks, I'm a, compared to the Lord, an evil dad. How much more God loves us. How uncaused that love is by us. Oh, not only is the grace of God humble us that I don't earn it, I don't merit, how it can assure us that if God loved me as a sinner, if God loved me as an indifferent person, how much more now that he has bought me with his own blood. Second, grace brings complete salvation. For the grace of God, verse 11 again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Please hear how inclusive this is. This is an offer to all people. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
anyone. That's what Scripture teaches. Now, we can talk about the doctrine of election, which I believe. Won't do that right now. That will take us down a, a trail. But, but here's what it does. Anybody who calls, that's how Scripture teaches. Anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, and one of my, I think, greatest preachers in history uh, outside of Scripture, uh, and my historical hero that way, he always preached about that. And he lived in a time where there was hyper-Calvinism. He goes, don't worry about if you're chosen or not. Choose today. Follow the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. He actually got in trouble for preaching that kind of message. People questioned him. But that's what he did. That's how he preached. This is all-inclusive. I love the inclusivity of Scripture. Again, in Joel, and Joel's so fresh in my mind because we just preached it, there's these promises, the same promise. Who, who will be saved? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And you know what else? And God will pour out a spirit on it. Who? Everyone. Men, women, old people, young people, even servants. There's this inclusivity and generosity of God's grace. And here's what we have, again, it's salvation for all people. So if you're human, and if you're humble enough to admit you're a sinner, you qualify to be saved. So all the people in Manchester that you're trying to reach out to with the gospel, that you're here, right, by God's intentional purpose, you know people Jacob won't know, right? You're going to meet people he won't meet. Why? Because God's spreading the gospel through all of us. We're all called to ministry. And what are you going to do? You're going to talk to him about this. God's grace. Oh, it's unmerited. God's grace is inclusive. But I've messed up my life. Think about what I'm stuck in right now. This is bad. This is hard. Oh, no. Let me tell you about my life. In fact, you know what? Let me tell you about Paul. There's a guy in the Bible that was killing Christians. You know, let me tell you about this woman who was a prostitute. She was known as an immoral woman. So you take her to Luke, and there's a, she, she lived a whole life. She was known in the whole town for being an immoral woman. And let me tell you about her encounter with Jesus. Wow. Wow. And we get to offer this salvation to all, and it brings salvation, which, what does that mean? Well, it's saving us from our sins and from the wrath of God. In chapter 3, again, just looking across the page to verse 7, so we have this, the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified by grace. What does it mean to be justified? It means we are forgiven and declared righteous. So everything I can't be, God has done for me in Christ. I don't earn it. Like we grow in our sanctification. In other words, we grow to be more like Jesus. But you either are or you are not justified. You either are or you aren't. Those are either or propositions. There's some things are you're in faith or you're not. You're under the grace of God or under the wrath of God. Those are, those are diametrically opposed, and it's one or the other. Now, am I growing to Christ? Oh, that's very progressive. But am I justified? That's not progressive at all. I'm forgiven all my sins, past, present, future. 
the ones I don't know that I'm going to commit yet, which my way God has already seen and died for, and I'm declared righteous. So his righteousness is now imputed to me. I have his record. You either have that or you don't. Good news this morning, if you're not sure, ask questions. Get the books he recommended. Read them. Think about them. There's nothing more important than this. I mean, Christian truth is either the most important truth there is or it's completely irrelevant. It's not good for anything. I mean, Paul would say it's not good for anything if it's not true. But we believe it's eminently true. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our works contribute nothing to our salvation. And oh, how we must remember that. Again, quoting from Paul, this apostle of grace, he says the following in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Not a result of that I believe better than others, that I'm inclined different than others. It's by grace alone. In Romans eleven six, Paul writes similarly. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I was, uh, I've had four missions trips to India in my life, which all have been great privileges. And my last one, I forget how many years ago it was, um, or maybe it was my third, but I had my son, Stephen, was only a, a two or three at that point. He just turned 21. Um, and I was going to India, and, and some of the places, I wasn't worried for my life. I don't want to overstate this, but I was going into some places where Christians were mistreated. We had gone into one province. They had burned 200, down 200, uh, 200 Christian homes. I met a pastor who's uh, pastors all the time that were beaten. They all knew someone who had been killed for Christ. I mean, there was nobody I met that didn't, like, know someone that had been killed for Christ. Uh, we were in the, in the state of Orissa, which is a, a radical Hindu state. And, and so going and even driving in, in India is, is mostly controlled suicide, it feels like. It's just, it's just crazy driving. Um, and, and so we go in there, and I'm talking to Stephen about what if I didn't come home. So I'm just talking to him. You know, he's three years old. And he goes, well, Daddy, I know you'll be in heaven. I said, why? Well, you're a pastor. I said, buddy, that's not why Daddy will be in heaven. Daddy will be in heaven because he believes in Jesus. And that's the only reason I'll be in heaven. It's not anything else. It's that. And I want you to believe in Jesus. And so when I went to these trips, I would write all my family a letter in case I didn't come back. Those are hard letters to write. To my daughters, hey, if I don't come back, I'm not there to walk you down the aisle. I wrote to my church. And I always said this, no regrets in following Jesus. All my regrets in life come from doing what I wanted. I have no regret anywhere, regardless of cost, regardless of anything, for following Jesus. Not one regret. Ask me about my regrets. It's all going to be where my sin got involved. It's all going to be doing what I wanted. (laughs) But never about following Jesus. And I was exhorting them, follow this God of all grace. You will have a life of no regret. Salvation is a gift. It is not earned. And God gives the gift because he is gracious and he is generous to be who do not deserve that. And then what does salvation do? It brings us a blessed hope. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, we have a blessed hope. 
And it's not only heaven, it's to see God. It's actually to see God. Um, and I think what, what a world that will be. We've done a series in Revelation, which I never thought I would do in my life, but it's probably my favorite book in the Bible now. Uh, we did a, just finished a series in First Peter uh, prior to Joel. And again, that idea of living as elect exiles, chosen by God. But it's all pointing to a future. And I think it's hard. And for you people who are younger, I am 60 now. So you start to think about, yeah, there is an end coming. Uh, I never think that. That's why when I go to the gym, I keep getting hurt because I keep exercising like I'm still 25. And so I end up pulling hamstrings and other things and like, why do you do that? Because uh, I think I should always get better. And at my age, you're just trying to stop decay, not get better. Uh, but if you're younger here, you might say, no, there's so much life in front of me. There is. There's tons of life in front of you. Hopefully it's life experiencing the grace of God and living for the glory of God. But you have a better future to come. I, mean, I remember always thinking that as a young person. Just let me get married first and then come. <laughs> you know, but at least let me get married and you know what it shows? I have a lack of imagination when it comes to how great heaven's going to be. I really do. It's just a lack of imagination of how great heaven will be. One of the things I, I love to do, I've told this to, to Jacob, and I've told this to our church forever. So this is what old people do. They tell stories, and then they repeat their stories, and you've already hold, heard them more than once. Um, I love hiking. And one of the things I love about hiking, I hike out west, and I backpack, and I'll be out in the mountains for five or, four or five days um, sometimes two days away from the nearest road and, and, uh, and all sorts of wildlife. And I've actually swum in lakes about 11,000 feet high. So it's crystal blue water. I mean, it's turquoise blue. It's Caribbean blue. It's gorgeous. Snow-covered mountains behind. Christine, think about it. how cold was the water? Well, if there's snow-covered mountains, the water's very cold because that's where the water came from, the snow. And, um, uh, but I love hiking that way. And here's what I get with hiking. You see the glory of God. I thought this was glorious before anybody saw it. This was just there. Same in the Caribbean, if you ever snorkel. These fish are beautiful. Before anybody saw them, they're just spectacular. I mean, there's things in the depths now that we're discovering that are just outrageous, aren't they? If you've ever seen planet Earth and some of the deep sea stuff, it's outrageous of what God has made. But, you know, it was outrageous before anybody ever saw it. These mountain peaks that I've been on have been, were outrageous before anybody ever saw them. And I thought, Lord, you are so great. And then I think this, and you let me come to, to see it. You're so good. Folks, heaven is going to be that much better. I was staying with, again, my son Stephen. We were staying right by the top of the lower Yellowstone Falls, which is a dramatic waterfall. And so we're at the edge looking at the falls, and we love roller coasters. Steve and I, we, we do roller coasters all day. And uh, I'm getting old. I'm starting to walk out of those things like punch drunk now. Um, but we love roller coasters. And I, I said, you know, buddy, I wonder if heaven, we need to go over like Yosemite Fall or Yellowstone Falls. Like we just jump in the water and go over. And then we go, that's cool. And we do it again. And you're like, let's do it. Like, because you know, we're going to have a new body. It's not going to get hurt. I'm going in the water, and I'm going over the waterfall. I mean, this is going to be spectacular in heaven. Folks, heaven is beyond imagination. We have a blessed hope that we look forward to, and mostly that is to be with God. The sad thing in my hiking is I meet people all the time on the trail, and they miss the point. They love the nature, 
and they miss the one who made it. I love the nature, but what makes it greatest, I know the one who made it. And that's all different. We have a blessed hope. And finally, grace trains us to righteousness. It trains us to righteousness. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Grace trains us to righteousness. That immediately refutes anyone who says, since we're under grace, it's okay to sin. Grace never leads to sin and never leads to license. In fact, it trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and lawlessness. And the idea of training to me means it's steps. It's steps that are involved in this. So it's like a coach training you. I love sports. Um, uh, so Zion Williamson, who is a phenomenal athlete, maybe a once-in-a-generation Thank athlete. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross New, Church uh, in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Somebody's got to train him for him to be able to play. I was asking Jacob, who's a lifter, said, you know, what's your goal in lifting? Well, he's got to train to get where he wants his goals to be. I train. They asked me, what do you do to get ready for hiking? I said, well, I train all year long. I run, I do stairs, and I lift because I want to be able to enjoy and not die at what I'm doing. <laughs> Although I do die, that's the place I want to die. Um, so there's training. What does training by Scripture? Well, it's instruction. It's encouragement. You being here on a Sunday morning is part of training. You being in your missional groups is part of training. You learning how to live life together is part of training. Right? It's a church of imperfect people. So I have to learn how to live with people who let me down, which, which churches do, pastors do. We make mistakes. How do we work through those things? That's all part of training, right? The life is training. So we have had a number of challenges in our lives uh, in the last couple months. Well, what's going on in that? And, and while it's been hard, I really feel kept by God. And there's something of, wow, this is hard, and there's no, there's no answer. There's no triumphant answer necessarily that I see in the, in the near horizon. It's just grieving. But then I'm like, but Lord, you're good. And then his word comes alive, and that's training. So life trains us. We'll be, be trained by it. But he trains us through instruction, so preaching, fellowship with others, your own personal Bible study, correction and discipline. I found God be most direct to me sometimes when he has corrected me. Most direct. And actually, um, this is probably one of the things that's changed in my life. What do you do when you feel the discipline of the Lord? You know what I feel? My first feeling now is God's rescue, not my guilt. First thing I feel is God loves me enough to stop me from being stupid. <laughs> that's how much God loves me. He, he'll actually intervene in my life to rescue me. 
And I'm thinking, Lord, thank you. And, and then I can walk through grieving of sin and repentance of sin. But I start with, God, you are the God of all grace, and you love me enough. Folks, I have seen God. I've seen people go their own way, and they're like just people in the world. They're running, and they want to be free. They want to be autonomous, independent from God. And it's like you see someone, and they're running to a cliff and saying, I'm free. And you realize if you saw someone run into a cliff saying, I'm free, and I don't want to be constrained by the path, right? I don't want to be constrained by rules. I want to run out and say, I'm free. You realize how long are they going to be free? About three seconds. And then they're going to realize gravity doesn't care about what they believe. <laughs> right? They're not going to be able to say, well, hey, gravity may be good for you, but it's just not good for me. Well, it is now, and it's going to call them the crash. I have seen God rescue people, grab them by the ankles. Say, man, you are running off a cliff, and I'm the God of all grace. Do you see the grace of God in discipline in your life? I hope you do. It's not meant to be condemnation. It's meant to, oh, I'm here to protect and to set you free. I want to give life, not steal life. And freedom is not doing what's right in your own eyes. That's the epitome of slavery. Freedom is found in Christ. And so grace trains us, instructs, encourages, reminds us of who we were before we were saved and who we are now. And then it helps us to live a new life, self-controlled, upright, godly, and pure. We have the Holy Spirit that helps us that. And then what do we become? We become people who belong to God, we're his own possession, who are then zealous for good works. This is why there's church plants. You're zealous for good works. This is why you don't just do your own schedule. You look at your schedule, you look at your finances, and you see God's priorities in them. Why? Because you're now zealous for good works. You have been purchased with a price. You belong to someone. You know, everyone's that sense of belonging. We belong to God. And now we're zealous for good works. Often worldliness, and it's mostly a younger audience here, a few of us exceptions, um, Oftentimes people think of worldliness as young people. You know, they're thinking about their dreams. They can be materialistic. You know where worldliness functions above, I think, almost any other place that I'm aware of? It's actually in retirees. Because you know what? what's the word? It's my time. It's my money. I worked hard, and now I get to coast. You know, the bumper stickers. I'm spending my children's inheritance. And it's that. And I thought, my word, if anything... As we become empty nesters, as I have more time and resources, I get to do more, not less. I don't want to buy the lie that it's my time. <laughs> hey, I worked hard. It's my time. I had to go to work and work long hours. It's my time. I sacrificed for my family, sacrificed financially. It's my time. No. I want to be zealous for good works hopefully to the last breath. My abilities will decrease. My energy will decrease. My intelligence hopefully doesn't increase more than it already has. Those things will all get limited. But you know what? I can still, I, I pray. One of the graces I pray for, Lord, may my, may my last words be words about glorifying you. May I testify to those that I know, that I love, my family, 
follow Jesus. May I testify to others. But I want to live my life every moment. It's God's time to be zealous for good works. That's what grace does. Grace radically saves us and radically transforms us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you're the God of all grace. Lord, when we read the Bible, grace is all over it. You chose Abraham when he was just wandering, worshiping the moon gods, and you called him. Lord, Israel, which was a small, insignificant, often rebellious nation, and yet you made them your own. Kings that failed, prophets that struggled. Yet you called your people. And then, Lord, at the right time, you sent your son. You sent your son for us. The God of the universe, the God who made everything, loved us personally enough to send his own son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You are the God of all grace. Lord, you still seek to save the lost, to bind up the brokenhearted, to remove the burden of autonomy and independence and actually give us freedom in following Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you're the God of all grace. Lord, please help us to celebrate your grace, to go out tomorrow with a fresh sense that we belong to you. And Lord, we do good works not to earn, but because we already have. Lord, we do good works because we have been loved and we love. And that captures us. So Lord, may your grace, which saves and saves completely and inclusively, also be grace that transforms us to live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.